If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and everything you need is all in one place, and here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Sue Mundy, Kentucky's most notorious guerrilla marauder during the final months of the Civil War. Welcome to Uncommon History of the South podcast, where we uncover little-known facts of uncommon history. History is full of curious stories you will never discover in any textbook. We uncover fun facts about historical people, interesting places, and everything in between. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History of the South. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, it's been a few weeks since we've done a podcast. Yes, it has. But before we get started, just want to make a couple of announcements. Did you know we are in the top 10% of all podcasts? Really? That's right. Out of two over 2 million podcasts, we're in the top 200,000. Really? Which, to me, for two guys in Perryville, Kentucky, that no one has ever heard of, you know, it's pretty good. Yeah. Well, so I want to say thank you. Everybody gets their 15 minutes of fame. I exactly. Yeah. Uh, I want to say thank you to all of those people, all of you that uh, listen to the podcast. And, you know, I'm out in public, and I know you've had the same thing. People come up and talk about how much they enjoy the podcast. We appreciate it. We appreciate you sure, listening we, every time we publish a new one. We really appreciate it, and that's what keeps us going. And I have so many people ask us about when we're going to do another one and so forth, and that gives us motivation. So that lets us know that people uh, – that love history and like to hear about it, and that's what we're here for. And at one time, we were like number 52 in Japan. Really? Yeah. And I think that may have had something to do with our bourbon when we had Michael Veach as our guest and we did the uh-huh. bourbon podcast. Well, what about that? But uh, thank you, Japan. Yes, thank you. Thank you all over the world. Yeah. Um, so also one other little announcement. We are going to be celebrity judges at the Kiwanis Charity Chili Cook-Off. And that's going to be on September 25th. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the tasting will be from between 1130 and 2 right, wait, p.m. Wait, just Are you sure you're reading that right? Does it say there will be celebrities and then there will be judging of the chili? Well, I don't think the two necessarily fit together. The, we, we are going to actually be some of the celebrity judges, and we're going to get to taste everybody and judge the chili. Wow. Well, I guess they're on a budget, aren't they? They are. They, are. they listen. Yes. They they they're good people. I'm actually a member of the Qantas Club here in Danville, and uh, the the group does great work for senior citizens and children. But the tasting will begin at 11:30, uh, and it'll go till 2 p.m. The winners will be announced at 2 p or 2:30. It's a family friendly event. Uh, the tickets are only ten dollars. That's for the chili. So you'll get to come in. Everybody will get to sample the chili. Um, Come out there also. Afterwards, there'll be live music. It's going to be Zella May featuring the distillery owner, Pat Heist. Yes. Who's, uh, it's going to be at the Wilderness Trace Distillery there on Lebanon Road. Yes. It's real easy to find. There's ample parking. Um, great place. Yep. And great place. They so, make a great product. Yes. So, like I say, it's, it's go all the benefits go to support Qantas. 
Um, you can go to the Kiwanis Facebook page, Danville Kiwanis uh, Facebook page, um, or you can go to our Facebook page. I'll have all the information up there. But like I said, it'll be seven, uh, September the 25th between 11.30 and 2, and the winners will be announced at 2.30. Then after that, there's a live band. So come out and Harold will sign autographs. We you might can get your picture we, with Harold. I don't know about that, but we will take the old car. We might give people rides or something. Who knows? Oh, that would be good. Maybe we could uh, do some kind of contest. So if somebody will uh, leave a comment on our Facebook page, I'll post this um, tonight or in the morning, and just leave a comment, and we'll pick a winner, and, and they can go for a ride in your car. Yeah. They can get their picture made with you. Uh, you can sign an autograph for them and uh, talk history. Oh, Lordy. Okay. <laughs> we'll see what happens. All right. So let's, um, let's catch up. Um, on today in Kentucky history, what happened? Okay. Today, as we're recording this, is September the 8th, 1775. Daniel Boone arrived in Boonesboro with his family for what has been classified as the beginning of the settlement of Kentucky. Female residents also arrived in Harrodsburg. So families got here. Before that, it was just long hunters and guys getting ready to bring their families here. So okay. that's a that's a significant thing, especially in that time. In 1890, Kentucky's fourth Constitution Convention convened in Frankfurt, and a new const, uh, Constitution, excuse me, was adopted April 11th, 1891. So Awesome. So that's today. That's today. All right. So what's our uh, topic going to be for tonight? Well, Brian, uh, this is something long term, and I really intended to do it quicker but it seemed like that we tried to diversify our podcast and do some different subjects and we didn't want to do too much civil war or too many uh, of one subject so I had kind of put this one off and kept putting it off but uh, this is one that I've probably spent more time on than other than the Kentucky rifle one that we did I've probably spent more research on this subject than any other that we've ever done um, this probably is 30 years or more of research uh, certainly 40 years of interest, uh, probably 30 years, the last 30 years I've pursued this stuff as, as time would permit. And uh, sometimes, you know, you get really hotly interested in something, you find new information, and then you kind of cool off, and then you go back to it, and you maybe put it to rest for a while, and then you get, it, get to thinking about it, and you go back and research some more. And so I've developed quite a library, as, you, if you, as you've seen, of this guerrilla research. It's what made you choose the gorilla research? Well, well, I mean, what drew you to this subject? Okay, uh, I'll I'll tell you a little story that uh, that got me. I didn't know anything about this. Our, our subject tonight, by the way, is Sue Mundy, the Kentucky gorilla. And uh, in the early 1970s, Wacky Radio was the radio station in Central Kentucky. Out of Louisville. Yes, out of Louisville, and it was the station. I mean, it was a rock and roll station, and everybody listened to Wacky, you know. And I don't know if we had the choices that we have today, but regardless, anybody that grew up in this area in the 60s and 70s and 80s will tell you Wacky was the radio station. And, you know, I knew Johnny Randolph. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. we went to church with Johnny, right. one of the legendary right. disc jockeys there. Well, there was a news director there by the name of Bob Watson. And uh, his actual name was Thomas Shelby Watson. And he was from Taylorsville, Kentucky, and he is from Taylorsville, Kentucky. And I was in Bardstown, Kentucky in the 90s, probably around 1971 or two. And I was probably 15, 16 years old. And he gave a little talk on 
the uh, a little documentary he did called The Silent Riders. And this is something he did for entertainment purposes at that time, he said. And it was a little news documentary he did over the radio, and then he wrote a little book. Well, we went and heard his talk, and we b- I bought his little book. And I went home, and I was absolutely amazed of all this stuff that happened right around central Kentucky, where we live, that I knew nothing about and had never even heard about. So he really got me going. And over the years, as I started doing research, I got to know Tom. And matter of fact, he and I went out a few times, and we looked uh, for graves, uh, evidence of where these raids were, all this type of stuff. And he had a, a re- fellow researcher with him named Perry Brantley. I got to know Perry. And they published a really good book called Confederate Guerrilla Sue Mundy. And that was in 2008. So um, also researching Quantrail, which comes into this, but we do not have time to tie Quantrail in with Sue Mundy. So tonight we're just going to try to talk about Sue Mundy and the Kentucky Guerrillas and what went on well, in 18. You mentioned Kentucky Guerrillas. Is this uh, Guerrillas? Is this something like uh, Planet of the Apes? Do they train like Guerrillas, monkeys <laughs> to 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 do to battle? To you know what 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 are you talking about when you say Guerrillas? Yeah, it's. Uh, no. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's, that's well, low-hanging fruit. But Yeah, you know. well, you know, it's spelled very differently as <laughs> yeah. well. But anyway, uh, a guerrilla is a hard thing to define because there's guerrilla tactics. Uh, there's legitimate conf- uh, military tactics that is called guerrilla warfare. And the nature of all warfare is as the loser uh, the person is starting to lose ground, lose positions, lose whatever, resorts to a more guerrilla tactic because really there's not many other choices left, okay? This is a little bit different than that. Um, the, yes, the South was losing the war. There was no question about that. But these guerrillas seem to be more opportunist. We're going to get into a lot more of that as we go. So they pledged to a side, whether it be the yes. North or the South. Yes. And both sides had guerrillas. Yes. And... Okay. Now, before anybody give anybody any notions that I'm one-sided about this, I have tried my best to look at this as objectively as possible. And having done that, I can honestly tell you I can't hardly find any good guys on either side. Really? Oh, it was bad. And and, 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 and it didn't matter whether it was Union or Confederate guerrillas, they seemed to do the same things. Uh, the Union guys was chasing these Confederate. They were hired, and we'll talk about that. So basically detail. they were acting as outlaws under the color of whichever side they were um, aligned with, I guess. Yes. Now let me give you Basil Duke's description. Basil Duke rode with John Hunt Morgan, a Confederate legitimate uh, uh, general during the Civil War. He was a, had, But he used guerrilla tactics. Okay, and he did rob banks, and he did do these things, but the money didn't go to split up, divide amongst the men. It went to the to the, the, to the Confederate government. But Basil Duke defined a guerrilla. He said, properly speaking. So we want to make sure that he said he was properly speaking as a man who had belonged to some army and had deserted and had gone to making war on his private account. He was necessarily a marauder, and sometimes he spared his former friends, and as much as admired by weak young women (laughs) (laughs) who were affected with a tendency toward shoddy romance. (laughs) (laughs) 
Another union guy talked about the Kentucky guerrillas as a murdering thug who used war as an excuse to commit murder, rob, and rape, and an excuse to get even. Okay. So, uh, as you can see here, it just depends on who you talk to and what in, what uh, it, it, uh, talk about people of the period of that time. I say this: desperate times brought out desperate people. Yeah. And this, like I said, we will find a hard thing to do is to find a good guy in this in this study because they on either side on either side doesn't matter which side you're talking about very brutal times um sue mundy uh wasn't a real name of a person it was actually a nickname uh he was born marcellus jerome clark august the 25th 1844 in simpson county kentucky to his father and uh, was Hector Clark and his mother was Mary. Um, his father died in 1855 when Jerome was 11 years old, and his mother died when he was tw- three years old and raised by his older brother and a Miss Mary Tibbs in Crows Pond, Kentucky. So <clears throat> here's a young man that didn't have a uh, father for a good portion of his early years. Um, don't know a lot about his life. I know he had an uncle named Beverly Clark who was in the legislature of Kentucky. Um, and uh, he come from a, a fairly prominent family. So a little background on, on this man and his, his, his growing up. Now, in Kentucky, this period of when this guerrilla activity was happening was in 1864 and 1865. This was the last two years of the war. This was when the South was was in pretty much retreat. How prominent was it in Kentucky? Uh, guerrilla activity? Yes. It was all over the state, Brian. It wasn't. that the, the, These are just one group of many groups. There was Champ Ferguson in eastern Kentucky and in southern Kentucky. Um, Did it exist more in Kentucky than other states or? Oh, yes. Uh, and, and I think the reason why, I would say Missouri probably had a good share of it as well. The border states seemed to be where the government was divided. You didn't have as clear control, and the people's sentiment were mixed in Kentucky. We had a good portion of people that still sided with the South. So the slave homing more prominent areas of Kentucky had that had slaves naturally had wanted to protect that property as they looked at it. So they were more Confederate in sympathy. That would be some of western Kentucky and some of central Kentucky, the bluegrass region. Lexington yes. would, would fall now under if that. you get into the mountains in eastern Kentucky and the more Appalachia regions, you get into more of the Union side of Kentucky. But there was it, that's not, that's not a, an exact science. Now, there was divided families all over the state of Kentucky. Yeah. So it was this time... Kentucky had about, I mean, excuse me, we had about 4 million slaves in 1861. Why was the war fought? Well, you know, some says to free slaves. Depends on who you talk to. Some people would say it was over states' rights. The South said it was a a war of rebellion. Uh, For some, it was a war of independence. Uh, And some says it was a war of northern aggression. If you were on the Confederate, that's the way you looked at the war. Uh, Kentucky was in the middle, and it voted twice for neutrality. So it didn't really want to commit either way. It just wanted to, some imaginary way, just stay out of it maybe, mm-hmm. but they couldn't. Because they were in the middle. It was totally impossible. 
So you see the pe- peculiar situation Kentucky was in. So the, there, it's amazing that things worked at all. So when, when Kentucky had pretty much taken by, by Union control by 1862 after the Battle of Perryville, well, pretty much Lincoln had appointed uh, you know, a military governor of Kentucky who pretty much oversaw things and ran it for a military district. Right. He called it the military district of Kentucky. So as these guerrillas became more prominent, it became a bigger and bigger problem because that was about the only thing left for Confederate troops to do would be to go to a more guerrilla-style tactics, as we talked about before. Uh, Jerome Clark enrolled in the Confederate government in 1861 in the 4th Kentucky Regiment Orphan Brigade. And he served there. Uh, he moved, was moved to a to another unit, uh, Captain Graves Artillery, and he was trained as an artilleryman. He fought there at Fort Donelson, along with in the Tennessee there in 18 and 62. Uh, they lost that battle, and losing control of the Cumberland River was a was a big problem for the South when that began to fall down because that gave the Union another artery into the South through. To, for supplies and, and control of the South, um, he was uh, c- he was captured after that battle, and he was sent to uh, to Camp Morton in Indiana, where he was a prisoner of war. But they took him out to a river, a group of men out to a river one day, <laughs> to take a bath, and they made their escape. They got away, and he's way- made his way back to Kentucky, and then eventually to Tennessee, where he rejoined John Hunt Morgan's Second Kentucky. Uh, battalion, and he had some action in North Georgia and in Tennessee again, and and in Saltville, Virginia, Wealthville, Virginia, uh, in May of 1864. And uh, there in Wealthville, they captured this cannon, which is kind of legendary for this group. And it was a it's just an old six-pound uh, mountain howitzer there, and it was called John Hunt Morgan's bullpup rifle, <laughs> or bullpup cannon, rather. Excuse me. Um, and they put Jerome Clark and another guy in charge of this cannon because he had been trained as an artillery. I mean, he was one of the few men that run with Morgan that had that experience from his Fort Donelson days. Uh, he fought with Morgan back into Kentucky. He was in the battles at Mount Sterling, Winchester, Maysville, Flemingsburg, Lexington, Cynthiana. And then around Claysville, Kentucky, he leaves Morgan. Now, is he deserted? Uh, some would say he did, but he left. So he went to making war on his own agenda. Okay. So he became his own guerrilla. He became his own guerrilla. Now, there was already some guerrillas that were around, and there was things going on. Um, and how much of that played into this, I do not know, and I don't know if anybody would know or how you could know. But uh, anyway, he ends up now, he's a full-fledged guerrilla. So they're about out of control. There's really no one that is directing them. There's no clear military objectives. There's nobody. There's this Colonel Jesse that we'll talk about later. That's kind of in and out of the picture. And do you think that where the war was kind of starting to wind down, and they they could they knew there wasn't going to be a, a victory, that they just kind of did that have anything to do with them choosing maybe to go off on his own? Or well, my opinion is, is with Morgan seeing like some of these Kentucky uh, towns that he he robbed the banks. Mm-hmm. And he, he emptied treasuries, robbed banks, storehouses, and all those kind of things. So so all of a sudden, I think Clark realizes here, well, I could do that on my own. Yeah. Me and a bunch of guys get together. We could do that on our own, you know. 
and we keep the stuff. So it was more greed motivated. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that yeah. had a lot to do with it. I don't think he was a military thinker. I think he was full of uh, of hatred and 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 full of vengeance, as both sides were, mm-hmm. uh, because of the times. They were a product of the time. Right now, we're not justifying anything here at all. Correct. Not 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 going down that road. But we're just saying he was a product of that violence. And who's to say if you or I were there that we would it wouldn't have changed us? I'm sure it would have. How I don't know. Um, now the first incident that I want to talk about and um, it is a is, is kind of typical of what happened with these guerrillas. Now Sue Mundy was not necessarily involved in this particular in, uh, incident, but al- along the Springfield Bloomfield Ro- Turnpike, there's a house and it's still standing. And it's right at the intersection of the Bluegrass Parkway. Mm-hmm. And is now, I think it's Spring Hill Winery. Okay, yeah. Okay. There was a gentleman there by the name of John R. Jones in 1864. He was 79 years old. He had married a 42, second wife was a 42-year-old uh, lady. And uh, he had a, a <laughs> had a reputation of having this fine silver saddle. Okay, don't ask me how people thought back then, but I didn't know (laughs) you could put silver on a saddle. I've never seen that, so I don't know what that would have looked like, but he had a fine silver-studded saddle, okay? So there was a a group there of Green Duncan, excuse me, uh, a group there of militia that had been riding around guerrillas, and they they were trying to procure fresh horses well they stopped at green duncan's house which was right down the road from from uh, james john r jones's house and this young slave boy had mentioned that jones place had uh, had a fancy saddle that he kept in the house so these three gorillas go up to jones's house and knock on the door and demanded he open the door well he won't open the door and they said if you don't open the door, we're going to set fire to the place. And so he fired through the two, two or three shots through the side windows of mm-hmm. this side door. I've been to this house, and I've seen this, where this happened. And he shot through these, and he hit one of these guys. And um, this one soldier got hit in the arm uh, by the name of McIntyre, and he uh, had to be taken into uh, Bloomfield, Kentucky, and seen by a doctor in which he had lost so much blood that he died a little bit later. Well, the commander of that unit sent him back, sent those guys back and said, you know, I want him killed. I want Jones killed. I want the house burnt to the ground. And so they go back to the house. They steal the silver-mounted saddle. Um, they uh, they set fire to the house. They shoot Jones and kill him. He stepped out outside on the porch, and they shot him three times and killed him. But they set fire to the house. Now, uh, the, the neighbors came running when the house was on fire, and they helped put the house out. But he died instantly. Uh, there was no hope for him. And what's really strange of this whole story, there was a lady died that was a neighbor that had a heart attack that was trying to help him that died from a heart attack. And when you told this all up, there was like five people died over a silver-mounted saddle. Hmm. That's kind of sad, isn't that it? That is. That is really sad that... I mean, what a waste of life, and, you know, we, we have a hard time understanding this today. General, uh, President Lincoln appointed General Burbage 
uh, as over the military district of Kentucky. And he had an order number 59, and it was that an unarmed Union citizen is murdered. Four guerrillas will be selected from the prisoners in the hands of military authorities and publicly shot to death in the most convenient place near the place of, excuse me, the scene of the outrage. Really? Yes. And how did this affect on the, the other side there, the, okay, the Confederate now, side? It also gave no quarter to these guerrillas. They were to be shot on sight. So they weren't even taken into custody? No. They were to be shot on sight. So that made him what? Even more desperate. Right. Right. And he also hired a couple guys that we'll talk about in the next podcast because, Brian, we're not going to be able to get through all this in this one podcast. Okay. But we'll talk about the, the, the union guys that were doing the chasing in the next podcast. But there was a, there was a, a couple guys that were taken out of uh, northern prison and brought to Bloomfield. There, there were two more that were taken out and taken to another town. But, uh, but he only brought two to Bloomfield near where this incident happened. And one was John May Hamilton from Johnson County, Kentucky. And he had a wife and children at home. He was 37 years old. And another one, young man, but 20 years old, by the name of Richmond Berry. And he was from Livingston County, Kentucky. And he had served with, now this is ironic, who this guy had served with. We're going to talk about, George Prentice, the le- editor of the Louisville Daily Journal later, mm-hmm. he's the one that actually gave Sue Mundy his name in the paper. But he he was a, a Union Democrat, and he was against the Lincoln administration, and he used these guerrillas. He wrote about him in his journal, in, his, in, the, in the Louisville Daily Journal. It's kind of like... He glamorized them. He glamorized them, and he made it look like that the Union authorities couldn't even catch a woman gorilla he said <laughs> so his son now ironically and this is how how this war has got some really strange twists to it his son was a colonel clarence prentice who served in the confederate army so george prentice the editor of the union guy his son served in the confederate army and uh this young man richmond berry had served under him now he was going to be brought to bloomfield and executed uh, for nothing. He didn't have any, these people had nothing to do. He with was just captured, uh, was a captured soldier, a Confederate soldier. Yes. And uh, Richmond Berry had, was brought to Bloomfield to be executed. And he, he pretty much said to his dad, he said, uh, uh, you know, don't grieve for me. Uh, tell my family, uh, I love you all. Don't grieve for me. Uh, I have, you know, died for my for the cause and, and I've died a brave man and uh, it was just very sad that that what was the point of this I, I'm not sure I, right it was, it was just a, 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 a way of escalating more violence is what it, the result of it was um, they were taken to a place called Bunker Hill on the south side of town and shot to death now do you remember me telling you the story about the family from Johnson County Kentucky that wanted to come and they found out where their ancestor was killed and wanted to dig him up and bring him home. Yes. Okay. That was that was him. Okay. And so I, I helped with that. I had to go down and help them find that grave, and the family came, and with the coroners and all the proper uh, way of doing it, that he was taken back home. Wow. And got to got to be buried back with his family. Well, good. Um, other gorillas, other names that come up in this story, Brian. 
Henry Blake Clay Magruder. He was from he was twenty years old. He was from Bullock County. Um, he was the son of Dennis Masden and Amy Magruder. And you notice his doesn't take his father's name. And he, it's called what you call a bastard child. Okay. Excuse the word, but that's what it was called back then. And that's something that always bothered him. And in our next podcast, we're going to get into his book that he wrote. Uh, he didn't write it. He had it dictated uh, before he was executed. And it's called Three Years in the Saddle with Henry Magruder. And um, he talks a little bit about how that uh, helped, uh, it affected him. Uh, Gabe uh, Alexander, 35, of Mercer County, Kentucky. He led guerrillas for a short time and was killed in uh, July of 64 in Marion County, Kentucky. Uh, Dick Mitchell. Now, Brian, you're famous for Mitchellsburg, Kentucky. Okay. Dick Mitchell is of the Mitchell family of Mitchellsburg. It's where he was born, and he moved to Springfield, Kentucky. And the, the town of Mitchellsburg, Kentucky, is named after that family who was there in, in earliest pioneer times. Right. Um, he uh, survived the war and went on to live a normal life. Hmm. Uh, One-armed Sam Berry, another character of this, um, he was from Mercer County, Kentucky. Um, his father was in the Confederate Army. His brother was in the Confederate Army. And uh, they were raised, his, his, his mother had died, and his father had left him with the Shakers. And they, he was raised in Shakertown. In Mercer County. In Mercer County. In Shaker Village. Wow. Okay. And he just left. He just he just left them. And in their journal, <laughs> they pretty much admonished him as being uh, no good. <laughs> <laughs> so, they, so they were kind of glad yeah, to see was, him go. Well, I, I don't know. It kind of, I, I, I take it as that they just was really put out with him for whatever. But this was before he began grilling, okay? This yeah, was, yeah. This was much earlier. Uh, another thing that is is peculiar about this story that really stands out is the town of Bloomfield, Kentucky. Um, center of the storm, 450 inhabitants. I have never seen a little town with as little people have as much activity as this old place did. I mean, it was a beehive of really? everything. Yes. It was a rebel town. There was no, no doubt about it. Uh, they flew the Confederate flag. Uh, it had 450 inhabitants. And with only four union sympathizers. Wow. Now, Brian, let me ask you, how does that work? How do you live in a town of 450 people? And if you're a union sympathizer, how do you make that work? You know, you'd almost have to think they were family. And that's the only thing that, you know, protected them or kept them from being ran out of town is, well, you know, they're, they're my cousin or my brother or something. They had to have some kind of connection. I, you know, the more you think about that, it's just like, how in the world with all the, I mean, there was some bitter stuff that went on here, as bad as any, any yeah. and how they, how they survived, uh, you know, with those odds against them, I do not know. There was a union guy there by the name of John Allen Terrell, and we'll find this Terrell family plays pretty prominent in this union side, and there was also a guy that worked for him there at the store that he ran. It was his clerk named Felix Grundy Stidger of Taylor. He was from Taylorsville, Kentucky. Now, the Copperhead movement had started and was thriving in Bloomfield and Taylorsville, Kentucky. Now, explain what the Copperhead movement is. Copperhead movement was about trying to undermine, it was Confederate movement trying to undermine the Confederate, or excuse me, the Union government. They had, they had done it. Uh, 
not through military means, but through um, secretive means. So would this like align with bombs? The, would this they, align with like was it the Knights of the Golden Circle or yes, so same yes, kind of okay? Yes, uh-huh. Well, the Knights of the Golden Circle was, I think, I believe, a union group that was trying to undermine the Lincoln administration. But the Copperhead movement was there to yeah similarities yeah. in purpose. Yeah. So anyway, um, this uh, Felix Grundy Stidger had, had has his own book, and that's a whole podcast in itself. But he helped uh, get this Copperhead movement busted up and people arrested. And again, how did he survive and live in that town? I do not know. Uh, but Bloomfield was a haven for guerrillas for some time. Um, There was a Dr. A.H. Merrifield of Bloomfield said that he would rather the Confederate guerrillas come to town than the Federals. So, see, it's just a matter of perspective. Dr. Merrifield was a well-known doctor. Matter of fact, most of the guerrillas, when they got wounded, that's one of the reasons they came to Bloomfield was because Dr. Merrifield would doctor them. I guess there were places that they went that they'd had to stick a gun in the doctor's face and and make him doctor them, you know, and hope that what he did was the right thing. Yeah, because they would maybe not find out immediately. Right. Um, there were other guerrillas by the name of Henry Turner, Bill Marman of Bullock County, Bill Marion, which actually was Stanley Young. He went by the name Bill Marion, but his real name was Stanley Young of Nelson County. Saul Thompson, Ben Froman, Big Zay Coulter of Mercer County. There was just a bunch of these guys. Most of the time, there were somewhere between 25 and 35 of them together at the time. Hmm. So that would be a pretty formidable force to reckon with. Um, on September the 8th, 1864, Luke Samuel's home in Lebanon Junction, Kentucky. Uh, they went there to steal a horse. And, and he, evidently, uh, uh, Magruder was from Lebanon Junction, and he knew this family and knew they had a really good horse. And he mm-hmm. went there to get it, and it wasn't there. And... He told him, he said, I'll be back in four days. And he said, that horse better be here. So he came back in four days, and the horse was still not there. And I don't know the reasons why, but it wasn't. So he had a, this this man, uh, Samuel's place, he had a 21-year-old son. And they took a rope and hung him. Mm. And they beat the dad over the head with a pistol and knocked him out and went riding away. And when they rode away, a family member who was hiding had ran out and cut the rope and got the got the boy down, and, and the man and the son survived. Wow. But that's kind of typical now. They're of, vicious. Of what was, yes. September 12th, 1864, near New Haven, Kentucky guerrillas attacked a train. Now, you don't see this as a military objective when it's just a passenger train. There was four Union soldiers that were riding as passengers in this train, and I would have thought they would have probably just executed them because a lot of times they did, but they didn't. Uh, They rifled through the, they robbed all the passengers, they rifled the mail bags, they burned the baggage car, but they paroled the four Union soldiers. And uh, then, ironically, they came back the next day and got the next train coming through and did the same thing again. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you talk about unpredictable. Yeah. October 7th, 1864. Now, here's a good one. They landed in Shakertown, Kentucky. Okay. Shakertown being the place where one-armed Sam Berry and his brother were raised. Right. So they decided to rob the stagecoach as it crossed over a covered bridge over Shaker Creek there 
you can actually, if you go there today, I could show you the abutments or the foundation of that covered bridge. Really? And I think there's some good photographs of that. There was a stage driver there named Billy Wilkerson, and he was driving the stage, and as he went into the bridge, he saw men rolled out on the other side to stop him. They were hid. And it was uh, One-Armed Barry, Jerome Clark, and some others. Uh, they got all the passengers out of the stage and lined them up, robbed them uh, of all their valuables. They put it behind a stone fence, made them stay behind. You know, you mm-hmm. can, those stone fences are still They're there everywhere. today. They're everywhere, yeah. And they put them behind the stone fence. They rifle through the mail bags. And then, you know, these guys, in this episode, I know they were drinking pretty heavily because of some of the witnesses that I have seen of the court trials of these men. So they were drinking pretty heavily. And Jerome Clark took one of the horses loose from the stagecoach and rode it up and down the road. (laughs) (laughs) Why <laughs> would you do that? He just called shenanigans and I took off, I guess. You know, I don't know. Um, he rode one of the horses up and down the road, uh, took two Union soldiers, John C. Robinson, 41, and Richard Hightower, a uh, prisoner. Now, he put them on horses, so I guess maybe he unhitched these horses from the stage because they didn't have horses with them because they were riding the stage. Now, the plan was is to take these two guys and give them empty guns and get them to ride with them back five and a half miles to Harrodsburg and rob the bank. And the reason they wanted those two guys mounted on horses with empty guns is to show a force because there wasn't many of them that day. Hmm. So they ride back to Harrodsburg. And it's, it was the, the Harrodsburg Savings Bank there on Main Street. And this was right down below the next block below where the courthouse the old courthouse was is today or the courthouse there and uh, J.W. Cardwell was the cashier and he saw him coming and evidently these guys had been uh, this is not the first time they were felt threatened or whatever so they were ready for this kind of stuff so he runs up and bars the doors and will not you know bars the mm-hmm. windows and doors he won't let them in the guerrillas uh, threatened to set fire to the bank. They curse and rave and carry on, shoot into the door, and he won't open the door. Well, of all people, the former governor, Brian McGoffin, was standing out by the courthouse. So he comes walking over. Now, this is a brave guy think, mm-hmm. to do this. So he comes walking over, and he starts talking to Jerome Clark, Sue Mundy. He says, you know, uh, I knew your uncle, Beverly Clark, and, and, and tried to talk some reason with them, but there wasn't much reasoning there. Yeah, They were all liquored up, and they were hell-bent on robbing that bank. Well, just as he was, you know, talking to them and trying to get, get them calmed down a little bit, here come the home guard had been alerted, and a bunch of men around Harrodsburg had got on their horses, had came in there, came up the street, and they were going to have a shootout with these guerrillas. Well, the guerrillas took off. They were outnumbered, and they rode up what uh, where it's now used to be where the Baptist Church is there on Main Street there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the horse that John Robinson was riding on got shot, maybe by one of the probably the because mm-hmm. they did not know who they were. These two Union guys was with them. They did not know them. They did not know who they were shooting at. Well, Robinson's horse goes down or. Uh, excuse me, I've got this all wrong. I'm sorry. 
one-armed Sam Barry's horse gets shot out from under him, and he turns and shoots John Robinson and jerks him off his horse and jumps on his horse to get away. Really? Yes. Turned on his own? Well, he turned on this Union guy that he'd captured, you know, and just instead of just pushed him off the horse, he shot him, killed him. The guy died. And matter of fact, I found his grave out in the country, cutest little tombstone. We'll probably put the picture of it up on our Facebook site. Yeah. I found his grave some years ago, and it was the cutest little stone of a little soldier with a tent and little cannonballs engraved on the stone. That was very appropriate for a Civil War soldier. You know. Yeah. Um, Hightower, the other, the other uh, prisoner, escaped. Uh, there was a lot of local citizens that by this time had, had got grabbed their guns and, and had they gave them a hot, hot ride out of town. I don't know how many of the guerrillas were wounded or anything about it. We don't, we, they didn't keep records, so we don't know. Um, we're going to move on uh, to October of 1864. George Prentice, the editor of the Louisville Daily Journal, officially gave Marcus Jerome Clark the name Sue Mundy. This is the first we hear of him. This is where the name came from. Um, by the way, do you, do you know that if Johnny Cash's song, A Boy Named Sue, Anytime I tell this story, somebody asks me this. Story. Oh, they ask you if this has anything to do with Sue Mundy. Yes. So we'll we we will answer that question. the 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 song "The Boy Named Sue" that Johnny Cash recorded was written by Shell Shell Silverstein. Shell Silverstein. Silverstein. I'm sorry, can't read my own writing. I, I wrote his name down so I would get it right. He's a noted uh, poet, humorist, and cartoonist. And he had a friend named Gene Shepard, who was a man, but had the name J-E-A-N. And he was always uh, embarrassed and always had been picked on because his he had a, like well, a, female, a woman's could name. be interpreted right. as a female name. And that's where he got the idea. And he used Sue Monday, or the yes. boy named Sue. Yes. Uh, oh, right, I didn't know that. And Johnny Cash first performed that song at San Quentin Prison. That's where he first well, I can tell you, the, on the way down here, the song that came to my mind was Chicken Truck by John Anderson because of the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> They're working on the bridge, to, and I'm behind the semi, and, man, he's taking both lanes. He's all over the place. He can't make up his mind. So I was thinking Chicken Truck, but okay. Okay. Well, anyway, Sue Mundy got his name from George Prentice, and, and he declared uh, that the Union troops – or excuse me, the Union could not even catch a female gorilla and, and tried to make the most of it politically. Uh, being a Northern Democrat and not, not liking Lincoln, uh, he, uh, he used that to the utmost. By the way, George Prentice came to Kentucky from, I think, Connecticut uh, in the 1840s to write a campaign biography for Henry Clay when he was running for president. And the Louisville newspaper people had gotten a hold of him and talked him in and hired him to be the editor of that newspaper, which he did for many years wow. long after the war. And we'll move on with the story. In October of 14th of 1864, there was a raid in Jeffersontown, Kentucky, where they – now, this just gives us some idea of how these guys got around. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going from Harrodsburg now all the way to Louisville. We're going to, you know, all over the state in the central area mm-hmm. region mostly. Um, J-Town, they robbed citizens there, killed uh, a guy named Hugh Wilson, a Union soldier from Illinois, just because he was a Union soldier. Uh, and then one pivotal part of this story is when Jerome meets Polly, 
excuse me, Molly. Jerome meets Molly. Molly was his girlfriend. She was 16 years old. He was 20 years old. These are still young people. Yeah. Uh, he was invited to a birthday party in Chaplin, Kentucky, by her father. And they were big gorilla uh, supporters. These people, they had went to their home many times, this Thomas household. And they had given her a birthday party, and that's where Jerome and Molly fell in love. Huh. And matter of fact, the last words he wrote on the face of earth was to Molly. And we'll talk about that more in our pot later, later podcast. All right. Wind this story up. In October 27th, 1864, he raided Woodburn Farm in Midway, Kentucky. That was the famed, probably the biggest horse farm in Kentucky. Uh, Robert Alexander was the owner of that farm. Um, there was a huge amount of very, very valuable horses there, probably more there than any other farm in Kentucky. And uh, they stole two horses of, of extreme value. One was called Asteroid, the other was called Lexington. Hmm. And I think uh, people that are versed in the horse uh, world will know those names. Were these thoroughbreds? Oh, yes, okay. thoroughbreds, yeah. Uh, he recovered Asteroid supposedly a couple weeks later near Bloomfield, Kentucky, but I have been told uh, through some other sources that that horse was, quote, greatly diminished. Mm. It'd been about road to death. So uh, not being a horse person, I'm not sure I'm fully aware of what that means, but he probably was never the same again. Uh, then there were raids in Macville, Kentucky, which is just north of Perryville, Kentucky. Um, there was a fellow named Perkins there. Uh, they robbed him, uh, roughed him up. Um uh, broke in his store, uh, took a lot of things of value. Then in December the 3rd, 1864, they rode into Springfield, Kentucky, uh, and that was, a, that was a real fiasco. They rode in there and just shot up, shot up the town, shot at people, uh, robbed the stores, the citizens. And one of the saddest stories, and I found this uh, gentleman's grave in the Springfield Cemetery, and his name was Thornton Lee. Uh, he was a young uh, man, had a family, uh, three, three, three daughters and a wife, and uh, he made the mistake of shooting at him. And uh, they shot, they shot him. They wrote, uh, supposedly one-armed Sam Barry rode him down. In, he was running through the back of houses in the yards, and Sam Barry was on a horse, and he rode him down and shot him in the back, supposedly. Um, now, also another man was shot there but survived by the name of Weatherington. And on Sunday, December the 4th, 1864, they rode into Perryville, Kentucky. Um, Henry Magruder had just stolen a Henry rifle from a robbery in Mackville, Kentucky. And this was a Henry rifle for those that aren't firearms people uh, or know a lot about firearms. This was the first repeating rifle. It was Fort Winchester, I think, bought the uh, patent out on this type of gun. But it was said you could load it on Monday and shoot it till Sunday. You know, it was yeah. one of those guns that, that and, and for for that time, that was like a machine gun. I yeah. mean, it was a really, really um, uh, advanced weapon for its time. Henry Magruder rode into Perryville in front of what's known now as the Parks House, which is still standing. And he held this Henry rifle, and the other guerrillas lined everybody up along Merchant's Row and had them empty their pockets and rob them. Old Dr. Green. And through the confusion of all this, 
One-Armed Sam Barry rode his horse into Dr. Green's building, actually rode it in, didn't walk in. He rode it in. <laughs> and, and he stuck a cut in Dr. Green's face and said, I'll have your uh, purse. And Dr. Green looked around and said, well, I don't know how many of you guys are here, but I'd already been robbed. <laughs> so, which he hadn't. <laughs> and Sam Barry said, okay, he turned around and rode out. And, you know, I have went into that building to look at that old floor to see if I could see hoof prints or right. marks from a horseshoe in it, and yeah. I couldn't. So it's too far gone, I guess. And, you know, people, if you want to come and look at these places here in Perryville, I mean, there's so much oh, history listen, here in Perryville, Kentucky, that's unreal. Yeah. Well, we're going to start winding down here because um, for sake of time, we'll have to do a part two. We'll finish this story and talk a little bit more about Sue Monday. Uh, they connect with uh, Quantrell's group, and uh, we'll talk about Ed Terrell and James H. Bridgewater in the next podcast. These are the union guys that chased them all over the country, and we hope you've enjoyed this uh, part of Uncommon History of the South. Yeah, and hey, also, if you'd like to... Uh, contact us and you know tell us what you think about the podcast or maybe even suggest a topic you'd like for Harold and I to cover our email is uncommonsouthernhistory at gmail.com uncommonsouthernhistory at gmail.com and don't forget about the um, charity chili cook-off on September 25th at the Wilderness Trace Distillery in Danville, Kentucky Um, you can go to our Facebook page to find out more about it And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Uncommon History. To find out more about the podcast and keep up with what we're doing, uh, follow Uncommon History of the South on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Make sure to subscribe for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeart Music, YouTube Radio, or your favorite podcast listening app. This podcast is created and produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolfman.